Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. So, Helen Clark, thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. You've been a political leader for more than 40 years. Yes, almost a long, <laughs> long time. You were the former administrator of UNDP, former Prime Minister for New Zealand. And very importantly, you were the first elected female Prime Minister of New Zealand and the first female administrator of, of the UNDP programme. But I think it's really intriguing that um, I read somewhere that you said um, that you'd hit the glass ceiling for the first time only in 2016 when you ran for the role of Secretary General of the UN. I was sort of intrigued because I think, well, why did it happen then and why not before? You've done all these incredible things before, but you hit the glass ceiling then. And, and I'm just quoting now something I read that you said, most member states of the UN have never experienced women's leadership. And so they don't really know what they're in for. And it's a step into the unknown. Well, certainly the first glass ceiling I met that I couldn't break through was at the UN <laughs> because there, there were glass ceilings in New Zealand although a friend of mine who runs the Council of World Women Leaders always says we shouldn't talk about glass ceilings, we should just talk about a thick layer of men, which are quite still <laughs> the same. Uh, but in not New a Zealand, layer of thick men. <laughs> no, definitely not that. But in New Zealand, while you came up against these, because generally you were part of a generational push or a movement mm. push, you could break through them. Uh, but that has yet to happen at the UN. It will happen. The mm. question is, is when? What will it take? You know, will the 10th uh, UN Secretary-General be female? Of course, <laughs> the 10th Secretary-General should be female, but will the member states allow it to happen? Frankly, it just wasn't important enough to most of the key players making the decision. Mm. And I do think that where uh, gender intersected was that... Women who are strong and resilient and assertive, and you have to be all of those things to get into a shooting position uh, to be Secretary General, there are people who find that quite threatening. Mm. And with the Secretary General job, uh, generally the people who have gone into it have been uh, seen to be quite accommodating. Some then really surprise and stand yeah. up and, and then... Uh, actually suffer for various reasons because of that. Kofi Annan, of course, mm. was gone after when he was uh, brave on the issue of the Iraq war. Boutros yeah. Ghali didn't get a, a second term. Uh, so it, it's a fraught job, but uh, for a strong woman to be a contender, and there were a number of strong women contenders, mm. it, it's, uh, it's, it's something that the member states have not yet got used to. Mm. And how do you, I mean, there were other people who, who ran for that position and also didn't get it, um, and some men as well. So uh, to what extent do you think you can say, well, I, I didn't get it because they couldn't accept a strong woman in that position? Um, you know, do you think there's something that, that was an indication that you got, that something that you felt and that you experienced? I think a number of the women candidates would have a similar perspective on it, yeah. that uh, all the women candidates were as well qualified, if not better qualified, than all the male candidates. But the women never got into the top league of votes, so that has to tell us something. Now, of course, the decision has a lot of geopolitics in it, 
And uh, I think actually it wasn't an advantage to be a New Zealander because our small country has an independent foreign policy and it does tell truth to power and it has yes. offended a number of great powers over the years for precisely uh, that, that reason. Uh, but you know, in the end, the issue is, do you want a Secretary General who's going to have strength of character and be able to stand up on issues of principle, as yeah. Kofi Annan did? Um, and there were certainly women candidates who offered that. Mm. I mean, you, you've um, talked about the, the, the importance of women's leadership um, and women being in sort of positions of power. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit about what you think characterises women's leadership that's different to men's leadership. I mean, what way do men and women have different leadership styles? And I'm kind of thinking about one of the questions that was raised earlier on about, you know, we've had both female prime ministers in the UK have consistently passed policies which have made the lives of women worse. Mm. Um, so are we maybe conflating women and feminist? You know, are we, are we, are we conflating those two? So, sorry, I know there's a lot of questions in there, but I'm quite interested to... What you think characterises, or what are the key tenets of women's leadership? Well, not all women work for women in leadership positions. In my observation, most do do good for mm. women, but but not all. Yeah. Uh, if, for example, one was reflecting on Mrs. Thatcher's career, it would not stand out as one uh, where the needs and interests of women were were, were even in her mind. Um, but what is often said about women's leadership is. Women tend to be more consultative, like flatter styles of, of, of decision-making, not so top-down. And I must say, when we look at the current UK Prime Minister, she does actually work very much in that tradition. Yes. She does try to gather people mm. to get a consensus and, and, and agreement. And that style of leadership is you know, now looked at in the literature as, as actually a better way than the sort of powerful leader decreeing the way things are mm. going to mm. be. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that about um, Theresa May and what's mm. happening now, because I read an article recently that said um, in the corporate world, not in the public mm. sector, that women are often brought in as CEOs when there's a real problem. And so they they're, it's almost like they're set up, set, set mm. to fail, um, that they come in as sort of crisis managers or... Um, do, has that been your experience? <laughs> there, there is a bit of that, that... Uh, when the men have all failed bringing a woman <laughs> and, and you know, no one really got a, you know, a tougher assignment than Theresa May because mm. she came in after a referendum that no one really thought was going to be lost. Yeah. And it was, and she had to try and pick up the pieces according to you know, her, her, um, her own beliefs about what should happen. So it, it's been very, very difficult. And, and I must say, while she comes from a different political tradition from mine, uh, I, I do think she's been incredibly resilient under fire, under mm. extreme fire. Mm. Yeah, um, and she's she's stayed a course. Now, it, it, there has been criticism of her that I don't think a male leader would have no. suffered at all. No. I think there are definitely gender-based aspects yeah. to that. Uh, so this is something for you know, British people to reflect on in the fullness of time. Did she get a fair shake? I mean, you've experienced that at different levels as well, haven't you? I mean, you've had a rough ride at times, and in the past you've said that you have to shrug off the nasty stuff and that when you were the leader of the opposition in New Zealand, you faced a barrage of prejudice because you're a woman 
people just didn't like you, you said. Mm. Um, they didn't like your voice, your teeth were crooked, they didn't like your hair, your clothes, you were tough, aggressive, bossy, mm. they didn't like anything about you. Um, and I thought, well, how, how do you actually deal with that? I mean, you know, most mm. of us would just sort of crumble up in a corner and sort of, uh, well, you have you know, to have how a, do you deal with it? You have to have a very high level of self-belief. And, and also people who believe in you, who say, look, you, you just got to see through this. Mm. You know, don't, don't let it get to you. Because if you believe you've got the capacity to do the job, and frankly, you can't see anyone else who can do it better, you will hang in for the long term. Yeah. But, uh, you do have to have a, have a deaf ear to a lot of pretty inane mm. criticism. Where did you get that affirmation from? I think... It, it, comes back to family background. I was born in a rural community. My family were very self-reliant, very resilient people. Uh, they stood for something. They were engaged in the community. Uh, they had a strong sense of you know, civic public duty, if you like. So, Were they active politically? My father uh, did have political activity in another party, <laughs> But he came round to my point of view in the end. Did he? <laughs> but they, they were very involved in what happened in the school, my mother with what happened in the church, women's associations, school committees, uh, Federated Farmers, the Rural uh, Farmers Organisation my father was active in. So they were very engaged. Mm. And they didn't walk away from things, you know, they, they stuck in. And, and you felt that hard. kind of sort very of influenced much, very much, yeah. the way that you, you were. Yeah. And what, what kind of aspirations did they have for you? Well, my parents were very committed to education. I was the oldest of four girls. We all had tertiary education. And my mother had been a teacher, so she had tertiary education. My dad had really hung out for the end of three years of high school because he wanted to go back to the farm. He, he loved his mm. farm. Uh, but education was very important for them, and that's the greatest gift they could have given us, as, as well as love and support. And you didn't, you didn't feel you wanted to stay on the farm? Well, it, that's an interesting question because these days it may well be that girls brought, born into farms would see that one day the farm could be theirs, they could run it. But that was never on the agenda when I was a child. Mm. The general feeling would have been, you know, poor George, my father, he hasn't got any sons. Yeah. Because there was no expectation that girls would be farmers. So do you think you, that your life trajectory and the kind of affirmation and expectations of your parents would have been different if you hadn't been four, four daughters, four girls? Well, I think if there'd been a boy in the family, the boy would have been set up to run the farm and almost inevitably there might have been preference because you saw that mm. in other families around you. Yeah. But that... That just wasn't the case. The all girls and girls did everything, mm. and the expectation was that we'd take our education as far as we could and you know, have a career. Mm. So you then, you, when you left school, you went to the University of Auckland. Mm. So what what did you study there, and what was your experience of? Well, I did what young people often do. What I'd studied at school was what I thought I'd study at university. So I was going there to enrol in history and English and German. 
And then I met a senior student who said, political studies is really interesting. And I thought, well, my family had always been politically interested in different parts of it. So I thought, maybe I'll take that as a fourth subject. And of course, that ended up being the one that really engaged my attention. But what do you think attracted you to that? Why did that... Um because I was interested in the world beyond me, and political studies had quite uh, an emphasis on comparative politics. So you went into your first year, you spent uh, a term on the US political system, understanding that, uh, a term on the French political system, understanding that, you spent a term on uh, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And for me, I lapped this up because I was interested in the wider world. I course on Asian politics which spent half the year on Japan and Mm. half on China and you know we're talking now you know the late 60s uh, this was a very 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 different world Mm. Uh, but uh, you know I've always found that that basic grounding in the comparative politics of of great powers extremely helpful. Mm. And before you became Prime Minister did you Mm. think well if I ever become Prime Minister I'm going to do this this and this I mean did you have a kind of something or a few things that you felt, if I ever got into a position of power, I would change this? Well, I didn't think that as a young person, because I never thought that I would be the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I did, uh, by the time I was a, a young university lecturer, certainly have my eyes set on being a Member of Parliament and hopefully a Minister. I had a huge interest in foreign policy issues and had a you know, a lot to say and a lot of interest in developing the New Zealand independent foreign policy. Actually, I never got to be a minister of foreign affairs, but as as party leader and prime minister, I had you know a lot of a lot of say. Um, so I always hoped I'd make an impact on that, and then and what kind of impact? What did you want to do? Well, you see, I grew up in an era where New Zealand had committed troops to the Vietnam War, which as young people we mm. saw as completely wrong. We campaigned to get out of that. We had a government, uh, when I was a young person, which uh, never stood up on the issue of apartheid. So that was very motivating for us. And that was really you know, one of the major human rights causes mm. of our time to bring down yeah. the apartheid regime in, in South Africa. Uh, and then you know, I wanted a government that would stand up and you know, be a voice against uh, nuclear testing in the Pacific and for a nuclear weapons-free world. And that, so, so these causes, you know, I was very interested in advancing as a young person, mm. a young member of the Labour Party. And you got a chance to do that. Got a chance to contribute to all of those things. Mm. And I was also very motivated by seeing that, you know, future generations of New Zealanders could enjoy the, the level of opportunity and security I had had as a young mm. person. What are there, is there anything that you wish that you'd done as Prime Minister that you weren't able to achieve? Well, you only have so much bandwidth. Mm. In New Zealand, you have three-year terms, so you have to hit the ground running, you need to get your proposals up, you need to get them enacted, and you need to get them implemented, and you need to show results. So uh, each three years, you'll have a, a fresh set of things. I mean, the one thing I'm now pursuing very much uh, advocacy on is drug law and policy reform and I would like to have had the bandwidth to do that. Uh, At the time when I could have done something 
Uh, I had uh, confidence and supply agreements in our parliament with a party which didn't believe in this at all and made it a bottom line that we took no action. Mm. But uh, that, for me, is is unfinished business. Mm. But you're doing a lot of that now, aren't yes. you? <laughs> I mean, do you, th- do you think society and, importantly, the political system has changed to be more conducive to women and accepting women as leaders than, than when you went through the process. And I'm kind of thinking about when you um, fought to be the leader of the party mm-hmm. and you said that the person who you won over actually created a lot of problems for you. Um, I mean, how, how do you deal with that and, and, and how did you deal with it and how did you address it? Because I suspect that would kind of feel that you'd want to just sit down with that person and say, right, come on, you know, and sort of engage and have a conversation about it. But how did you deal with that? And well, that, that wouldn't have worked at all because uh, he felt that he should still have the job. So mm. he spent a lot of time trying to unwind that, that result and probably got quite close to achieving it, actually. Really? Uh, so you really had to uh, work to keep a majority of people with you. Uh, so it, it was very, very uh, factionalised. Uh, How again, did you do that? Well, you know... I mean, I'm sure you were really skilled at... I mean, I, th- I, I can imagine you were very skilled at doing that. But I just, well, how would you advise somebody? How do you do that? So when I, when I won the leadership position, uh, I decided that what would be wrong would be to take a very factional approach to uh, how the... senior positions were allocated. So Mm -hmm. I had people who had not supported me at all in senior positions, and that was always the case through three years of pretty bad infighting. Uh, I always kept, you know, up in the hierarchy of the parliamentary group, people who actually weren't very supportive at all, but uh, it would have been suicidal not to have had them in senior positions because Mm. that would have created a, a sense of grievance. So it was really learning to... You know, have a very inclusive style of leadership where people who didn't necessarily agree with you on some key things uh, could still be senior and you know play their part. Mm. Mm. And you feel that you were quite successful, really, at bringing bringing those people together yes, and getting and, that support. And and I survived in the job. I went on after losing one general election to win the next one, and then to uh, win another two after that. So the style did work. Mm. Exhausting, though, I'm sure. Exhausting. I mean, I read that Forbes magazine ranked you as the 22nd most powerful um, woman in the world in 2016. And um, and I thought, well, that that's amazing. I mean, you're in the, 20, in the top 20 or 22nd. And then I thought, well, why the most powerful woman? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that we, we sort of have these um, sort of figures and metrics which continuously sort of divide. Mm-hmm. Um you know, to be the most powerful person? Well, you see, if you did the most powerful person, uh, very few women would get into it. Angela Merkel would, uh, but it would be few and far between. Mm. Uh, So I think Forbes, by having the most powerful women list, aims to demonstrate that there are women out there doing amazing things and holding important positions Mm -hmm. and that that should be recognised. If you just did a 
you know, a power index that would be dominated by alpha males who yeah. occupy so many of the leadership positions <laughs> around the world in governments and companies. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're um, well, some people um, very excited in Manchester because we're going to get us our first female statue um, at the end of this year in the central square by the town hall um, of Emmeline Pankhurst. Mm. And... Um, well, the first one for 100 years and the last one was Queen Victoria. And um, I wondered what you thought about the, the sort of the, the significance and the importance of that public representation. Well, I think it's very um, important. Uh, when I was in Ottawa earlier this year, uh, my husband and I looked around the Parliament grounds and we came across the most interesting statues uh, which relate to the women a person's case, which was heard in the Privy Council in London <laughs> in the late 1920s. And staggering as it may seem, uh, women were precluded in Canada from being appointed to the Senate because all the way up to the highest level of court within Canada itself, uh, it was ruled that women did not fit the definition of person under the, <laughs> under the Act. <laughs> and and well, the women had to go well, to the Privy Council. And, and the Privy Council brought down a blistering judgment against the highest court within Canada, saying that this was simply ridiculous. <laughs> so the women who fought the case are depicted in these amazing statues, having their cups of tea uh. and, and talking in Parliament grounds in Ottawa. And there are similar configurations of statues in Calgary and Alberta and also uh, in, in Manitoba. But I'm told that when the women who wanted to commemorate the work of these incredible women pioneers uh, first began the quest to get the statue in Parliament grounds. They were told, oh, statues only go here to people who are nation builders. <laughs> and then they had to argue that the women who fought for the right to be appointed to the Senate were actually nation, nation builders. builders. You know, they hadn't sort of conquered indigenous people or, or you know, acquired a <laughs> province, you know, it was, but it was nation building. That's, that's amazing. That's when you saw that when you were in, yes. in Ottawa, did you? Yes. Interesting. I was thinking about one of the questions that somebody asked you just now in the, in the, the meeting that we had around, um, um, I think it was Tanya who asked you about women leaders and women who don't necessarily mm. encourage or include other women. And I, and I was just thinking about the sort of, um, what was the name, the, the New Zealander suffragette, Kate, Kate Shepherd. Shepherd, yeah. And and she said, I've got a quote from her somewhere here about sort of class, race, um, and really, I suppose she was talking about intersectionality. Mm. And and I wondered whether, in a sense, there might be many people who would prefer to see um, a person of colour, a man of colour, as a leader, um, represent who they feel might represent their interests. And so, to what extent do you think? We need to think. We need to think much more about intersectionality, about class and gender and race and mm. ethnicity. And I suppose in New Zealand, that's quite. Well, I think I think too, we do. I think we do. I mean, it's interesting and and incredible that Barack Obama was able to be elected president yeah. of the United States. I mean, brilliant man, and he got there. Yeah. And I think 
you know, earlier on in life, people said, how could anyone with a name like Obama be elected <laughs> as president? But he got there yes, through his strength of personality, yes. yeah. character, ideas, yeah. resilience, powerful oratory. But then there was Hillary, who well, was so well qualified to be president, mm, and she didn't make it. And yeah. I think we would be totally blind to reality to deny that gender played a role. Yeah, no, absolutely. But in a sense then, do you think, you know, because there's many people who would prefer Barack Obama, for example, a black man in the White House than a, than a white woman. Than a woman I, I think Hillary House. had had 40 years of being trashed by mm. opponents from the time she was first lady in Arkansas. She was under attack and that attack continued, continued. all the way uh, through to when she was first lady. Probably the only time she didn't come under concerted attack was when she was a senator. She was you know, thought to be, and I'm sure she was, a very hard-working and diligent mm. senator. And then when she went to the State Department, she did well. The, the tragedy in Libya came at the end, and she was hammered for that. And, and that, in a sense, reopened the criticism that then dogged her yeah. uh, through the election campaign. But uh, she was... A strong woman. She mm. was an educated woman. She was well qualified in her own right for senior roles. Uh, but uh, all of that made her a target mm. for those who played to stereotypes of how women should be. Oh, um, she completely had to shrug off, didn't she? All that prejudice and the ways and people people referred to her and the kind of characteristics and yeah. yeah well, it, it almost evoked uh, images of the of the witch hunts in uh, an earlier period mm, mm. in uh, American history. You know, these shouts of lock her up at, at the rallies. Yeah. It's it's like the, the, the witches' trials yeah. in New England. Yeah. I mean, how do we change that? <laughs> well, look, so, sometimes when, you know, women are going... You know, for these positions and they're coming up against these ceilings, you don't always make it first no. time. She didn't make it. No. And that was very disappointing to, mm. to many of us. But she's been brave enough to give it a go. Yeah. Uh, you know, one day a woman will be president of the United States of America. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we will look back on Hillary's efforts and say how incredible it was that she persevered with yeah. the barriers that she faced. I didn't win the first election. I ran for as, as leader mm. of the opposition. And, you know, I had to be kept you know, strong enough to sort of pick yeah. up and carry on. Mm. And, uh, you know, so old saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. Try again. Yeah. I didn't succeed in becoming Secretary General, uh, mm. along with the other women candidates. But the fact that we were there mm. and refused to go away yeah. and st stood there till the end... Uh, are you going to try again? No, because it's the region's <laughs> wrong. I mean, right, yes. you know, the, the current Secretary General comes from the Western European and Others group, which New Zealand unfortunately belongs mm, to because yes, so. it's dominated by Western Europe and mm. he was Western European. They have now had four Secretary Generals, all male. The chance for another person from that group to be Secretary General yes. won't come around for decades. No, no. I'll be I dead. Mean, <laughs> But you, you, I mean, you mentioned about, you know, that, that there will be a, a woman president in the White House and that Hillary will have played a role in, in encouraging that. And I suppose one of the things that we might look back on that we're living very much in the present is the, um, the Me Too movement. I wondered what you, 
you thought about that? I mean, how, how can we harness those kinds of movements and um, to create political change, do you well, think? Well, I'm all for the Me Too movement because I think it's bringing out what people have known or suspected was the case in workplaces for a very, very long time. Interesting that it came out of Hollywood. Yes, and, and I know. And I think there will be so many... Uh, young woman who went in with hopes of being an actress, hopes of being a director, and ran up right against mm. these powerful guys who wanted something in return for for the promotion. You had to be pretty strong to, to stand up to that. In New Zealand, Me Too broke out uh, uh, as in the, the experiences of interns and junior lawyers in, a, in one of New Zealand's leading law firms. Absolutely disgraceful behaviour. But I suspect that in a number of other major firms, organisations, and not just in that profession, people started thinking there, but for the grace of God, can yeah. we? Because we've had people yeah. like that yeah. doing those things in our organisation. Yeah. So it's a real wake-up call, and, and it is important to expose it because that's the only way in the end that you, that you get change. Mm. In the case of New Zealand, there was a, a quite a major report and inquiry done into what had happened at the law firm. That law firm is now obviously saying that it's committed to implementing all the recommendations, but actually every firm should be looking at it and yes. saying, how do we measure up on mm. these things? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and I suppose you know, women in, in leadership roles should also talk about their Me Too moments, you know, and I think that's important because some, very often it's um, junior people, people who are sort of slightly, um, you know, marginal in certain ways, who've had a lot of courage to, to speak up and um, seems well, to me that Well, so, sometimes the speaking up comes at the point when uh, the predator concern becomes so weaning that there's whistleblowing. Um, and that that will bring people forward to say, look, this is ridiculous. Now, who knows what the ins and outs of the Judge Kavanaugh uh, case were, but that woman had so much courage to come oh, forward. Oh, so much, yeah. And just as with the experience of Anita Hill all those years ago when Clarence Thomas was nominated, yeah. in the end, her point of view was put aside. But actually, in the process of all of it, the world learned a lot more about Judge Kavanaugh, which wasn't on his CV. Yeah. Um, and it shows really that when women come forward, they end up being the ones on trial, not the person who's alleged of being the perpetrator of yeah. abuse. So it does take a lot a of courage. A lot of courage, mm. yeah. So what next for Helen Clark? Um, do you miss being in party politics? No, I don't, I don't miss it at all. I've always had a capacity in life when I've finished doing one thing or it's run its course, I shut the door on that. And actually, another door always opens. So when I shut the door on New Zealand politics, it was to go to UNDP. And when I'd done the two terms in that, which was quite enough. And Did you enjoy I, that role? Did no, you? I, I did enjoy the role. I, didn't, I liked UNDP. I liked the people. I liked the mandate. There was a lot about the UN that drove me crazy. Uh, but in the organisation you could get some things done. But when that ran its course, I was very happy to move on, and since then the phone never stopped ringing and the emails never stopped going. And uh, To do what kind of things? Uh, well, I focus on public good. I'm not a private sector person. I'm not interested in being on company boards. 
I'm happy to be on advisory boards for good causes, as I am for Women Deliver, which is a major women's advocacy uh, NGO, which runs the major conference every three years for civil society uh, on uh, gender equality issues. I support commissions like the Global Commission on Drug Policy. I'm co-chairing a commission on repositioning children's health for the Sustainable Development Goal era, which is an initiative of WHO, uh, UNICEF and the Lancet. Mm. I co-chair an advisory board for a public fund uh, mainly supported by Norwegian money, uh, looking at new ways of supporting zero deforestation efforts and I do a lot of conferences and events and speaking and across a range of issues because having been a leader I won't be slotted just into one or two things I I do range quite widely Mm. in what I talk about. So you're not winding down then? Retirement has never (laughs) been in the vocabulary. (laughs) So what would you like to take on next? What's your or additional I don't know, areas of work that you haven't been involved in that you might like to get involved in? Well, the, the next thing I'm gearing up for is a major trek in the Himalayas to, uh, ah. to mark the centenary of the birth of Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to yeah. climb uh, Mount Everest with Tensing Sherpa. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. When are you but, doing that? Uh, May next year. Wonderful. But uh, next year is already looking like it will be a world of is it? interesting things to do. Well, we're so pleased that we we that you've come to Manchester and, and thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you.